Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Emma Norris, our Director of Research, and I'm this week's stand-in presenter whilst Bronwyn is away. Boris Johnson broke Covid laws. He's been fined by the police, but he's apologised unreservedly. Is that enough as the Prime Minister tries to move on from the Partygate row? We'll be weighing up his response and how Parliament can, and sometimes cannot, hold politicians to account. Given that the government wants to knock stories about parties and police fines off the front pages, cynics might raise an eyebrow at the timing of its announcement of hard-hitting, headline-grabbing policy on asylum seekers. But does its much-criticised plan to send some asylum seekers to Rwanda stack up? We're going to be taking a look. Cynics might also raise an eyebrow at the timing of another attack on civil servants who are choosing to work from home. But does the government have a point? To discuss all of this and more, I'm joined by an expert duo of IFG senior fellows, Jill Rutter and Kath Haddon. Hi, guys. Hi, Hi, Emma. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Paul War, chief political commentator at the iPaper and the godfather of the Daily Politics newsletter. Hi, Paul. That's very kind of you. Thanks very much, Emma. <laughs> okay, so let's start with that apology. In a statement to the Commons, which combined an apology for being fined by the police with a rundown of his trip to Ukraine, Boris Johnson tried yet again to draw a line under Partygate and convince his party that there are bigger things for them to worry about. Paul, you wrote a great column about the Prime Minister's performance. It doesn't sound like you were very impressed. Well, not wholly, I have to say, Uh, mainly because I think... um, Although he kept saying, you know, he apologised profusely, unreservedly um, and wholeheartedly, essentially he did so repeatedly. And it's the repeatedly bit that is beginning to worry his MPs, that this isn't just a one-off, a sort of an accidental ambushing by cake, um, which perhaps is at the (laughs) lower end of the scale, obviously, of these COVID breaches. You know, the fact that, uh, as he says, for nine minutes, uh, there's someone saying happy birthday to to him. And I think um, uh, Rishi Sunak, too, feels certainly hard done by the fact that he was waiting for another meeting and just happened to be caught in this. But the fact is that there are um, much more egregious breaches of lockdown rules which took place, not during the daytime, not during any sort of what could be called work hours, the you know, the leaving dues and other things that happened, including the thing that we haven't really seen properly explored, which is the alleged party in the in the Prime Minister's own flat held by his, his wife Carrie to the tunes of uh, ABBA, winner takes it all. Now, I think that that's the reason there's a lot of nervousness amongst Tory MPs, which is it there's more to come. And I think that's why the the debate that's taking place today in, in the Commons as we speak on uh, whether or not there should be the Privileges Committee um, should be tasked with looking at uh, alleged uh, misleading of Parliament by the PM on this whole affair. That's why it really does carry some weight, because I think the longer it goes on, the more the ammunition emerges, the more the detail emerges of the other egregious breaches, perhaps photos which were taken by the official photographer. Um, and when Sue Gray's report comes out, in, in all its gory detail, I suspect, things will get worse for the PM rather than better. And this whole idea of kicking things into the long grass, that only works um, if the long grass isn't full of man traps and snakes, and uh, it may well be. <laughs> and um, as you say, you know, this this probably isn't the end of, of the fines that are coming. Do we know anything about um, about the Met's next moves and, and what's likely coming down the line? I think what it appears to be the case is that they're moving through sequentially, um, perhaps in chronological order. Uh, and 
that suggests that there are there is some sort of method going on and that the it's a kind of water torture for the pm in that sense um that each time he said this week for example one of the most significant things he said in the house was he agreed with Ruth Jones mp that he would try and update the the, the house whenever a new fine uh, emerge so each time he's fined and we're told this by number 10 too he'll have to make a fresh uh, announcement to Parliament that will require a, a fresh um, explanation. Just he set the precedent now in talking about the detail of it. Oh, I was only there for nine minutes for this cake event. He'll then have to give some detail about each of the other breaches, and I think that will become more and more uncomfortable. Um, and at I have to say, the the reason I think this matters, normally it's so easy as a political journalist to get swamped by the idea of intrigue and plotting, but it's the different groups within the Tory party, very different parts of the Tory tribe that are sufficiently worried about this, that they were going to abstain on this motion today. And it's when you've got lots of different bits of the Tory tribe so, so worried that I think a prime minister um, looks in serious trouble. And as we're getting into the vote, let's start talking about that. I mean, it's worth noting now that we're recording this at lunchtime on Thursday. So MPs are currently debating whether to refer the Prime Minister to the Privileges Committee. We don't yet know the, we don't yet know the outcome. But let's talk about what's happened so far. Kath, what is the type of vote that the opposition parties have forced? What is it they're trying to do? So the vote that they're having is whether or not to refer the Prime Minister to the Privileges Committee, as we've discussed, in order for him then to be investigated on whether or not he misled Parliament. So it's not a vote directly about the Prime Minister did mislead Parliament. Uh, it's a vote about whether or not to investigate that. Uh, and that is kind of the heart of the, the tricky issue that the governments have got themselves into, because... Uh, presumably, they don't want the Prime Minister to be investigated. They don't believe that the Prime Minister deliberately misled Parliament. But at the same time, this is about the role of Parliament in doing its core scrutiny role and over something that is a substantial issue. You know, misleading the House is a really important point. This was all, you know, part of Keir Starmer's introduction today. But Given how things are gone, we know that there are a lot of Conservatives who believe in that fundamentally as well, even if they perhaps also believe that the Prime Minister did not mislead Parliament deliberately. Um, so it's all turned into a bit of a mess at this point. I was going to come in and say, oh, there, you know, there was this uh, Labour motion which said that he should be investigated, but only after the Met Police had uh, you know, finished their inquiries. But the government have tried to adjust that to say it should be after Sue Gray's inquiries and that there should be a second vote uh, to decide whether or not it's referred. But the government's now dropped all of that because the Prime Minister said he was very happy for, for MPs to refer him to the Privileges Committee. So the whips have dropped the government amendments and they now seem to be sending Conservative MPs home. And it, there's a good chance that certainly the government just expect this to be voted through on the nod, which means that Speaker calls the question and no one objects and says no. And so the motion just carries without having to have MPs troop off and go and vote. Uh, if that happens, then it means that you don't see the number of Conservative MPs who either uh, abstain, which is, is the more likely option, or even vote to say, yes, I think he should be referred. Um, but, you know, it's another chaotic day in Parliament. So we don't know what will happen. It could be that some Conservative MPs disagree with the motion and so force it to a vote uh, against what the whips now want to happen. So it could be more chaos later today. 
I mean, Kath, as you say, uh, it's been really chaotic in the last 24 hours. And, you know, it certainly seems pretty unexpected that the government's withdrawn their amendment at the last minute. Paul, do you think this means that the Prime Minister misjudged the mood amongst Conservative MPs? What's going on? I think they certainly did misjudge it. Um, there were, the first rumours were last night amongst some backbenchers that I talked to that the government may well pull this. Uh, that that snowballed this morning when I think the whips saw the sheer dearth of numbers of people that were around in Parliament. Um, they they kind of took fright. The irony is that last night they, they had won some votes by substantial margins and they thought well, Labour simply weren't trying. Um, but then I think today they realised it's a Thursday Lots of people were clearly worried. Um, And in the chamber itself, I've just noticed quite a lot of the potential rebels have turned up. I mean, I counted at at least 15 um, on the backbenches who would have possibly got up and made speeches in support of this motion, even if they meant they were abstaining, um, if the government hadn't pulled its own amendment. So they, they could see which way the wind was blowing, I think. And that's the smartest thing to do if you're a whip uh, and it's the smartest thing to do if you're a prime minister, particularly one who's out of the country and, you know, blindsided effectively by this. And, and Jill, taking a look at the bigger picture for a minute, you know, does any of this matter? Is this about election leaflets for Labour or is this really about a point of, princi- a point of principle on the kind of checks and balances that we have in the system? Well, there are clearly probably quite a lot of MPs who are deeply unkeen at being seen to be vulnerable to attack, that they were preventing Parliament even from looking at this question of whether the Prime Minister had knowingly misled Parliament. So I think there clearly was an electoral dimension, the timing vis-a-vis the local elections was important. But there are also quite a lot of sort of biggish constitutional figures pointing out that the Prime Minister was rising, riding roughshod over Parliament and that much of our constitution depends on you know, parliamentarians being prepared to put their sort of party labels behind them and standing up for some of the principles about the way in which Parliament functions. We've had that at the weekend with the much quoted rant, uh, very mild mannered, of course, from Lord Hennessy. We had a comment by Danny Finkelstein, a Conservative peer, all saying Parliament really has to stand up and protect, you know, our rather fragile uh, constitution. And if they fail to do that, then really they're provoking a lot of questions about whether the checks and balances we have in their system mean anything with a government with a big majority. So I think, you know, those sort of constitutionists will be sort of saying at the last minute, mm. Parliament does seem to have exerted a bit of control over an executive that otherwise has proved itself very willing to ride roughshod over many of those norms and conventions that we have relied on to date. Yeah. So it's probably a goodish day for Parliament uh, that the government's been forced to back down on this one, even if it's a bad day for competent parliamentary management. At least they got in ahead of the <laughs> vote this time, unlike Owen Patterson, and then drove them back down again. I do think, I mean... <sighs> This is about misleading Parliament. I think it is really valuable, whatever the outcome of the eventual investigation uh, by the Privileges Committee, whatever happens, you know, hereafter. Just this importance of misleading Parliament uh, has been reasserted. It's very much in the public's mind. It's in, you know, a lot of MPs' minds, and I think that's really important for Parliament. Like I say, regardless of what happens with the Prime Minister's individual case, but 
there is a lot of politics in this. Uh, you know, Labour's uh, approach to doing this was was to try and get as many Conservative MPs into an awkward spot as possible. Um, and also, I mean, I'd be interested in what Paul thinks about this, but we don't, he may know better, we don't really know the sort of scale of Conservative anger about this. And it may be that a lot more of them are perhaps keeping stum than they might have done were local elections not happening because, you know, it's really tricky. Mark Harper did it this week, but it's really tricky to come out and have a massive go at your prime minister two weeks before uh, local elections are happening. So, um, you know, they've got that balancing act between what their constituents think, what they're hearing on the doorstep, uh, and also, you know, being loyal to their own party during an election campaign. So it's, it's really awkward stuff. I think I think you're right. I mean, it's the golden rule uh, in during an election period that you simply don't attack your government. And I talked to uh, one of the potential rebels a few weeks ago who told me, look, we're, we're, we're having to wait now. We're waiting not for Sue Gray. We didn't know at that stage when Sue Gray may report. We didn't know when the fines may come. But this MP told me at the time, look, we're waiting for the local elections for the simple reason that that's the only point at which my local Tory association will get it about the Prime Minister when the scales may drop from their eyes finally. They all love the Prime Minister for obvious reasons, but we have rumbled them. They haven't rumbled them yet. The only way they'll rumble them is if all those councillors in our area start losing their seats and, and they've worked hard to get them elected and suddenly they don't have their seats. Then the penny may drop. And I think that's why you're looking at um, the, that's the real genuine reason for delay on their part in terms of any possible rebellion. Of course, having said all that, the Prime Minister may still count on quite a lot of support amongst the Parliamentary Party. Don't forget, a lot of these MPs owe their seats to him almost directly. Um, he's the one, he's brought the magic, the electoral magic on that campaign trail that won many of their seats. Um, they haven't quite forgotten that, although, you know, I think to, to be fair, but in, in, the, in the round, in talking about the politics of this, Labour's danger is talking too much about Partygate and not enough about cost of living. Uh, and I, I know that some in the Labour Party have a reservation about that. There, there is quite interesting, I think, that some of the polling that's coming out, I think it's sort of interesting stuff, two counts from the polling. One is the sort of gulf between Conservative MPs and voters on whether sort of party gate matters or not. The sort of idea that Ukraine had swept it aside mm. seemed to be mm. taking hold in the parliamentary party, but not reflected in the views of voters. And the other thing I think that will be worrying quite a lot of people is notwithstanding what Paul said about Labour not talking too much about the cost of living crisis at the moment, is that the government appears to be doing so badly across the whole suite of policies, according to recent polling, uh, you know, and Labour is now beating it on the economy, which is actually a relatively rare event. Mm. And one of the ways government was planning to grip its policy agenda um, was to reorganise number 10 a few months ago after the Sue Gray interim report came out. The Prime Minister told MPs that he got it, he's going to fix it, and he's going to focus on delivering his priorities. I mean, is there anything, any sign of anything being fixed at the moment? There was the news reports again today where it's yet again focusing on who sits in number 10, the building, and who sits in 70 Whitehall, the building. And I have to say, if that's the the nature of the reforms that end up happening, it's it's not really going to solve anything. It could make a lot of things worse, but Jill. I mean, it always struck me that Sue Gray had actually given the Prime Minister a bit of a lifeline by saying that the issue was confused accountabilities in number 10, which 
honestly, really, um, I'm not sure it absolutely was. It might have been that there was some duff advice going on, but uh, confused accountabilities didn't really seem to be the issue. It was always pretty clear who was in charge, charge where. I think the interesting thing as well in that piece that Kath's mentioning is what we haven't been talking about. We talked a lot about the Prime Minister getting fined, but that piece also said there was an awful lot of uh, dissatisfaction mm. and a mm. lot of juniorish civil servants, maybe people who haven't made it into the headlines, most of whom have left their jobs already, who were picking up fines for events that they thought, you know, maybe were work events, certainly where the people they were working for were present and feel... And in some cases appear to have actively encouraged them to, to attend. And may have encouraged them to attend. Yeah. And that there's a sort of quite a big morale dip around the centre and that's then being compounded by the thought that well at the very least I get to go in through the front door at number 10 which actually having worked there is quite fun that you get yourself on camera uh, going in and it does feel a bit different being in that building and now I'm being shipped out to some sort of nether region of the cabinet office and my chance of bumping to the prime minister and him saying hello to me is now gone forever so Mm. I think there are some issues we'll have to wait to see we have to wait to see whether there's a real real restructuring in number 10. But back in the uh, days of the Michael Barber delivery unit, the Prime Minister strategy unit, I think they were based in the cabinet. They were both quite big. They work, didn't yeah. work inside yeah. number 10. So yeah. where you sit is, I think being moved is probably more of an issue than yeah. where you're recruited into. I, yeah, I have slightly less sympathy for the whole, oh my God, I'm not near the Prime Minister and so important anymore. Um, you should be able to figure out other ways to, to do your job. On that though, the the junior officials getting fined. I mean, this is my frustration because a lot of the Prime Minister's defence has been, I sort of, you know, he sort of accidentally walked in on a party that these terrible people in number 10 have organised and didn't tell him about. But actually, the truth is, if you're an official in number 10, a junior one, and you know the PM's coming along to this thing, you're going to want to be there. And you think that he's the one giving you permission because you look to him, you look to other senior officials, senior advisors. To, to work out what is appropriate and, and not to do. So it's kind of the saying, oh, it wasn't my, it's, it's, you know, he's both saying, oh, it's not my responsibility for leadership in number 10. But he's also saying it, it was everyone else's fault, which is if, a bit If you thought the prime minister disapproved of partying in number yeah, 10, you would not be there, there would not be parties in number yeah. 10 because it is the prime minister's Working environment is also his home. And frankly, you do not go and hang out in the garden or have quite raucous parties in Well, and also, I mean, it goes back to that that key one where the um, summer party drinks email that was sent out by Martin Reynolds Mm. that, you know, got him into so much hot water. And then we still don't know the full details of this, but we were told that some officials did say, hang on, what are you doing? That breaches COVID rules. So again, it goes back to that point. Well, did anyone tell the Prime Minister that? And if they did, that undermines his whole argument about um, he didn't know, he thought it was a work event. Well, this is where the um, the release of the final Sue Gray report will be such a moment of reckoning for the Prime Minister. Shall we move on to the second um, big row of the week, uh, the Rwanda asylum policy? So shortly before the Prime Minister came to Commons to make those multiple apologies, and Priti Patel stood in front of the House to defend what she called the government's world-class plan to send some asylum seekers to Rwanda. 
It's a controversial policy. It's been criticised by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, but will it work? And is the point even that it works? Um, we're now joined by Rhys Klein, who is one of the team at IFG and has been studying the policy closely. Hi, Rhys. Hi, Emma. Um, so could you start by telling us, you know, what is this policy? Well, the policy tries to allow the government to fly to Rwanda some of those people arriving in the UK via non-agreed routes, particularly small boats crossing the channel. Those people would then be able to try to claim asylum in Rwanda rather than the UK. And the government believes that it will be able to do this because of provisions in the Nationality and Borders Bill going through Parliament at the moment, which makes all those people uh, arriving in the UK via small boat inadmissible for asylum here. And what have been some of the big criticisms of the policy so far this week? Well, there are three big practical problems with the policy. The first is that the government's main aim is to deter people from trying to cross the channel in the first place, but there is no solid evidence that that will be the effect it has. Indeed, in Australia, where a similar scheme was tried, we actually saw numbers increase following the introduction of offshore processing. This leads on to the second uh, big problem, which is the cost and capacity of the scheme. We to be blunt, don't know what the scheme will cost. It's a £120 million trial to begin with, but there's been briefing uh, of prices ranging from twenty to £30,000 per person, right up to around £2 million per person per year in the case of the Australian scheme. And regardless of uh, the cost of the scheme, the capacity is likely to be much lower than the order of magnitude of the problem that we face in terms of the hundreds of people arriving uh, in small boats each day. And lastly, of course, there's international law. The Prime Minister and Home Secretary have assured us this is compliant with all the UK's obligations, uh, but that just saying that doesn't make it so, and the government will very quickly find itself fighting those fights in the courts. Thanks, Rhys. Paul, I'm sure you were listening to um, the Home Secretary. Do you think she mounted a reasonable defence of, of the policy? Uh, well, she would say she absolutely did, because absolutely is her favourite word. Um, she said it 22 times within a very short period of time. Um, I think what's really interesting about this is, um, in some ways, you could say it is the most cynical of the government's um, so-called Operation Fight Back over Partygate. Um, we've had the BBC, uh, you know, licence fee restrictions. We've had all sorts of other... Um, uh, bits of culture war, but this this is the big one. And um, it, the reason I say it's deeply cynical is because I think that most people looking at this, and I'm including the civil servants in that, would have concluded that this is never going to fly as a policy for the reason for the legal reasons, not just because uh, you know ambulance chasing lawyers, as the prime minister will call them, um, but because of the fundamental problems um, of, of legality, trying to square it with our international obligations, um, uh, 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 and also because of the sheer cost. Uh, I think that it almost seems unsustainable. And that's why, it, as I say, it seems cynical because I think the government know it's not going to happen and therefore it's all about signalling. We're co constantly told and have been for years by this government and previous governments that uh, in lobby briefings that um, the government doesn't comment on a hypothetical. Well, this is entirely predicated on a hypothetical, which is what would happen if we had a policy like this? And if we had a policy like this, we would be seen to be tough on migration and we wouldn't have open borders. It's it's a policy that's deeply rooted in the hypothetical. And I, th I think it's not rooted in practicality at all. 
Jill, what do you make of the timing of the announcement? If it's um, if it's all signalling, as Paul says, do you think government will consider it a success? I think they will have probably considered it quite a success. It sort of provoked the reaction from a lot of people that they would like reactions provoked from and enabled them to sort of play to that bit of the base that they're prepared to take on, sort of, you know, wimpy journalists, lefty lawyers, uh, all those sort of usual suspects, you know, with the added bonus of being able to take a pop at the Archbishop of Canterbury. So that's all makes it sort of quite quite fun they're also able to say we're overruling these uh these civil servants who matthew rycroft the permanent secretary of the home office required a direction on value for money grounds various other people saying well surely he should require a direction on lots more grounds as well like regularity and propriety and feasibility probably could have got the full set if you'd really (laughs) want to go for a sort of grand slam of directions so it really is doing that so i think we've heard quite a lot about the government trying to signal big you know defined lines with the opposition you know this gives them an opportunity to say look labor hate this policy they're not prepared to be tough on borders and we know that the sort of small boats crossings are a big issue they've been quite a big nagging issue with a lot of the conservatives core vote who don't see the government doing anything so the government can now say look we've come up with a policy no, it's premised on the fact that doing this will deter small boats. That's after all what the value for money direction says, you know, that it's impossible to assess because it's based on this assumption. There's really no evidence that it will do that. Um, but they've had to contend with other things. Because people who are not knowingly sort of wimpy home secretaries like Theresa May denounced it quite effectively on, I think, you know, grounds of legality, practicality and efficacy. So she clearly was not terribly impressed. And she, after all, is the person most associated with things like the hostile environment. So you can't ever say that Theresa May was uh, weak on borders. So I think it's really interesting to see where it goes from there. But I think, you know, it achieved its immediate uh, effect as well when it was announced last week before Parliament came back of giving the Prime Minister a brief respite from Partygate stories as well. So I think they're probably quite pleased with themselves in number 10 in the Home Office at the moment. And Paul, do you think that this presents kind of problems for Labour politically? I think it does. I mean, some Labour MPs will tell you privately that um, you know this is popular, proving popular uh, with their kind of voters and certainly the voters that were taken from them by, by the Conservatives in 2019. So they're wary of it, which is why it's quite interesting that Starmer's gone so hard in opposing it. Um, and obviously he's opposed it for lots of different reasons. He's trying to make it sound like he's not quote, soft on immigration by saying this is literally impractical, as Theresa May would say, uh, and will just cost too much money, um, rather than it being necessarily just immoral. Um, no, he'll, he'll tailor his, his message to whichever audience will be most receptive to that. I think what what really is depressing, though, is that if you look at the stats on who is arriving by small boat, uh, which is what this is meant to address. Yes, the numbers have, have, have mushroomed hugely um, in the last few months and the last year. But if you look at the people who are coming, you know, the number one, uh, the Home Office's own figures, the number one uh, country where people are coming from, 7,000 people in 2021, was Iran. The second was Iraq. Then it was Eritrea, Syria, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Sudan. I mean, 
most of these people are coming from uh, places where you would normally accept an asylum seeker to come from. And the big question is, what a failure of statecraft that we haven't got safe and accepted routes for them to come here legally um, and that they feel so desperate to do so. So these, yes, they are young men, um, um, but this idea that somehow they're economic migrants uh, and therefore not asylum seekers, I think, um, just doesn't really fly. And I think, yeah, I'm sure the civil servants in the Home Office are trying to think, well, can we have an alternative that actually makes more sense? Yeah, really important point. Um, Jill, you mentioned uh, a ministerial direction on value for money grounds. Kath, should we just take a moment to explain to listeners what a ministerial direction is? And I you mean, know, how rare are they? And what does that tell us about you know, how the culture in the Home Office and how things are between ministers and civil servants at the moment? Yeah, I mean, these are basically uh, a way for, I mean, Jill will explain the sort of the four reasons why you might ask for a ministerial direction. But they're basically saying, look, you as a minister, you have the right to tell me what you want to happen. But I, as the accounting officer, uh, so that means that the permanent secretaries have to account for, you know, the spend of their department to parliament. So it's a direct link of accountability between parliament and the civil service, which is, is rare. Um, I, as the the accounting officer, have to be able to explain this away, and I am in an uncomfortable position on that. So I need you to directly put in writing that you want me to do this, despite my advice and my objections and so forth. And they are rare. Um, you know, it f- feels like they're getting more frequent, uh, but still, if you look back at the statistics, it's it, I think something like fewer than a hundred over uh, since nineteen ninety seven or something like that. Um, and actually, the Home Office is one of the ones in which there are fewer of them. It's it's uh, the MOD is one of the the uh, departments that has the most of them, probably because of the huge spending programs that the MOD uh, puts in place. So. Uh, yeah, Matthew Rycroft, I mean, if you read his letter, he goes out of his way to say, I completely understand why you want to do this policy. Um, I completely understand all of your reasoning about, you know, the, the t- deterrence effect is the really important thing that you, you care about with this. Uh, but value for money, I just can't justify it. And therefore, I need you to give me a ministerial direction. Um, and um, that's the sort of the tricky thing. And it's frustrating for ministers because, you know, they don't want the sort of, you know, the sausage making to be revealed. They they want to just say, no, 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 this is completely uh, effective, efficient, you know, good way of doing this. Um, and they don't want that sort of digging into it. And obviously it supports the, the opposition and, and various, you know, criticisms of it. And it, it does increase the tensions um, in departments. Obviously, Priti Patel has at times um, had frustrations with the Home Office. She fell out uh, with one of her previous uh, permanent secretaries, leading to this case of investigating whether she bullied him, leading to the resignation of uh, the Prime Minister's previous advisor on ministerial interest when he said it was bullying and the Prime Minister said that it wasn't. So, so yeah, there's a bit of a track record there. And I'm sure Matthew Rycroft would have found it a very tricky position. And I'm sure Priti Patel is very frustrated over it. I'm actually not as sure as Kath. I think actually that it probably plays out relatively well for a pretty the, Patel. The showing I'm doing it despite. Yeah, uh, I, I think you know the government's not a mega fan of much of the civil service. Thinks it's a sort of bit of a blob, and uh, you know we know that they've been frustrated with sort of the Home Office before. So I think uh, I don't think pretty Patel will be that worried about it being seen that she is imposing 
her tough measures over the instincts of her civil servants, who she could then characterise as having failed to get to grips with these problems, or indeed offered her better solutions to this. So I think, um, yeah, it plays both ways. I mean, she may be worried that she's now taking personal responsibility for this and if it all ends up looking disastrous, then, uh, yeah. then you know, it's a buck stops with her. But I'm not sure that in the short run, it plays that badly for her. It's worth saying, I mean, one of the, the conversations they had in the exchange of letters is about the nature of the work that had gone into it, implying that it was a bit of a rush policy. Um, and, and Patel says that in the absence of quantifiable and dynamic modelling, uh, which she says is inevitable, i.e. The, the, the absence of it is inevitable, when developing a response to global crises influenced by so many geopolitical factors, um, such as climate change, war and conflict, um, that that shouldn't delay the delivery of a policy. But I mean, the problem with that is they've been talking about this issue for years now, um, how to solve the sort of, you know, migration across the channel um, problem. There was this sort of famous talk about home office staff brainstorming different ideas like putting a wave machine in the channel to try and um, disrupt some of the boats coming over. So um, yeah, it will pose lots of question marks about the sort of what work has gone into this policy and whether it will stand up, but we will see uh, how it progresses. And Reese, just kind of moving to the, the bigger home office picture, if you like, this is the latest in a long line of controversies around immigration. Um, obviously, we had Wendy Williams report on, on Windrush. Do you think the home office have learnt lessons from that or is this more of the same? Well, one of the striking things about the announcements last week uh, was the lack of operational detail that came with the speeches from the Prime Minister, the Home Secretary and the Memorandum of Understanding. I mean, in the Williams review that you mentioned, some of the some of the problems that she highlighted in the Home Office uh, in the context of Windrush was the damaging gap between policymaking in the department and the reality of implementation on the front line, uh, and therefore the lack of understanding about the impact policies are having on particular communities and on the sort of appropriate way to manage risks in decision-making. So, I mean, in that context, the lack of detail last week on how the Home Office would make decisions over which people to send to Rwanda and how to make sure they remain safe and well once there uh, does raise the suggestion that the Home Office is failing to sort of learn the lessons of Windrush and also makes the ministerial direction that Jill and Kath were just talking about all the more uh, eyebrow-raising. Brilliant. Thanks, Reese. And Reese, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Okay, we're going to move on to um, yet another row that's made it onto the front pages this week. Um, and that is the latest attack on civil servants who continue to work from home, or at least some of the civil servants who are continuing to work from home. This one's come around a few times already, but it seems to be being given another push by Jacob Rees-Mogg, who is now a minister at the Cabinet Office. And Paul, what do you make of the latest round of briefing on working from home? Well, what's interesting is just how consistent it is. Um, it's not just Jacob Rees-Mogg. I think uh, Sajid Javid, the health secretary, mentioned it again this week. Um, Nadim Zahawi has mentioned it. Um, and it's really fascinating because I think this, this whole issue of whether or not uh, civil servants should be allowed to work from home um, uh, is an encapsulation of the the real division with or the tension within this government's own political philosophy, which between the free market and the state intervening. The free market would suggest 
um, for m- millions of people out there uh, post-pandemic, lots and lots of businesses have worked out that actually it makes sense to allow individuals the freedom to choose to work from home because they're effectively more efficient. Um, and why shouldn't the civil service operate in a similar way? If you can do your job remotely for a certain number of days a week and then come in for some some uh, part of that week, why not? Um, but it seems as though there is almost like a sort of Victorian approach or, again, a culture war approach from the government, which is all these this civil service blob, overpaid, you know, underworked, uh, not pulling their finger out. They're all... Um, pen pushers who are actually, you know, uh, not working as hard as the quotes, ordinary, uh, hardworking families that in the jargon of most politicians, um, even though they are obviously hardworking families themselves often. Um, and I find that that tension is one that is difficult to resolve for the government. I mean, you, you can see it in comments from Rishi Sunak, who obviously is more on the libertarian free market side of things when he, he praised the fact that in the past, uh, you know, he went to New York and there'd be these hubs in the center of New York where people would be uh, not working from home, but they wouldn't be at work as such have a sort of halfway house in their local community. And they could do a few few hours or days a week in these these places that some places in Britain have set up to revive town centres. But on the whole, um, what's wrong with giving an individual the freedom to choose where they where they want to work? Now, the civil service, uh, it, it, again, it's part of the, the attack on the civil service. And I know that Dave Penman has highlighted this because um, it's obvious if the government have literally told the civil service we are reducing the office space you have because of um, cost cutting and efficiency savings and have written into each department's plans that they're reducing that office space, um, they're automatically forcing more people to work from home and en- encouraging it and did so even before the pandemic. So there's that element of disingenuousness too. And I, I, I don't know, I'm, uh, without wanting to sound like I'm um, a, a big fanboy for the whole of the civil service, I just think it's deeply unfair if, if you know, um, people um, like civil servants are, are being told that actually you're on your peloton. There was that famous incident, wasn't there, where um, I think it was um, Sarah, uh, Healy, Sarah Healy um, at the culture department, um, the permanent secretary who was ridiculed by the party chairman Oliver Dowden at party conference which was one of the most sort of cringe-worthy moments I, I, I've got in living memory of a direct attack on a civil servant by a, a, a serving politician for party gain that was quite uh, stomach churning in my opinion um, but you've got you've got that at the same time as Rishi Sunak bragging that he actually goes on a peloton himself um, so I think uh, for me it's it's a thing that's going to continue don't forget the other factor the reason the government thinks this culture war plays well is not necessarily with the public who actually quite like flexible working but newspaper editors lots of whom are more old-fashioned than you can imagine and lots of whom for the reasons of business model rely on commuters to keep their papers being bought and therefore their profits to be upheld so don't forget that key factor in all of this if you're the editor of the daily mail or whoever you rely on that commuter traffic for your business model <laughs> now um, so you can see why, as well as the other reasons for attacking the so-called blob of the civil service, why ministers do it. But you would have thought a minister would have enough sort of personal decency not to do it. And Jill, what do you make of all of this? Um, I mean, is there anything in this? Will government work better if officials meet in person rather than online? I think that 
If you're a, a genuinely hardworking civil servant, then you will probably do as much, if not more, if you cut out your commuting than if you're going to the office. And as we've seen, as we've experienced at the Institute for Government, uh, at the moment with COVID levels very high, actually forcing people into what now are quite crowded workspaces isn't necessarily a recipe for having a high functioning workplace because you'll actually end up knocking out quite a lot of your staff uh, if they test positive with COVID. So I think the government needs to needs to think about that. But there is one bit where I do have a bit of residual sympathy with Jacob Rees-Mogg, which is, and I don't, but I don't think attacking the sort of working from home culture is the right way about going about it. The civil service has a very long-standing issue with its failure to deal with poor performance. And if you talk to anybody, particular, particularly in the sort of you know lower ranks of departments, they will be very frustrated that while there are people who you know, work very hard. The civil service is extraordinarily poor at doing anything with people who don't pull their weight. And we saw this actually when we moved towards the, you know, hot desking was that it was fine. The people who came in early, the people who were keen would come and probably manage to congregate together, get desks together. And you could tell people were working very hard. The one or two members of your team who you thought didn't necessarily put in maximum effort would turn in, turn up a bit late, would say, well, I couldn't find a desk anywhere near you. And actually, it's very difficult to tell what they were doing. Those are some of the people who actually may be using the uh, cover of working from home to actually not do that much. And so I do think that what Jacob Rees-Mogg would do much better to concentrate his fire on is not presenteeism, not presenteeism, but actually working with civil service HR, with managers in the civil service to say, actually, we want a culture where it is very easy to deal with poor performers. And I think actually, if he did that, he would find a lot of civil servants actually cheering for him, rather than regarding this as another rather simplistic uh virtue signaling attack on the civil service. Really interesting point. And then one of the other challenges that indeed we have written a lot about at the Institute is around recruiting and retaining um, the kind of brightest and the best in the civil service. I mean, how do attacks on working from home affect that? Do you think this is going to make people more likely to apply to the civil service or, or less likely? I think it's going to make people think that the government doesn't like civil servants. Um that maybe these aren't ministers that they want to go and work for. The sort of people that the government probably wants to attract in the civil service are not people for whom a civil service job is a great job um, and the only job they can get. Mm. They want to attract people who have quite a range of alternatives that they can mm. go to. And in many cases, those will be better paid jobs that they could go to. So I think actually if the civil service wants to compete, and particularly I think, you know, we've written some stuff, if it wants to compete in areas like sort of digital skills mm -hmm. and things like that, the civil service should be mirroring best workplace practice, not most primitive workplace practice. And what I think a lot of civil servants will be seeing in this sort of tirade from Jacob Rees-Mogg will be that this is still quite an old-fashioned workplace. It's not one that's sort of catching up. And as they see other employers offering flexibility, offering, you know, very nice conditions when you get into the office. And a lot of civil service offices aren't that attractive because people have been crammed 
into buildings to allow the government to make, to economise on the size of the government estate. They won't like that. It's quite interesting, though. I think one of the things that the civil service may be about to compete better on, but this goes against the, you know, being available presentee in the same office as your minister, is the fact they can offer now good career structures in more locations. Mm. I mean, only last week we said goodbye to one of our colleagues uh, returning to the civil service from the Institute for Government. And one of the reasons he's gone back to government was that it offered the possibility of having a good career potentially outside London. He regarded that as a bit of a selling point. The government wants to have a civil service which is dispersed around the country. And it really is all over the place in its approach to how do you make that work. And so what's the difference between somebody working you know, partly in an office in Darlington or Manchester or Leeds or Wolverhampton, partly from home, and maybe having the odd FaceTime with the minister actually in London. And I think the government has not got its uh, its lines at all straight on this. It's frankly all over the place. And, you know, this is part of a much bigger agenda on government reform. And we've actually got an IFG report out today, which weighs up progress on the government's rather grandly titled declaration on government reform. Um, but our analysis is that it hasn't made all that much progress yet. Kath, what do you think? Do, uh, do ministers need to refocus their efforts on reform in the, uh, the coming weeks and months? Yeah, well, I'd say they do, but I don't know that we have much hope that they, they will. But I mean, that goes to kind of, you know, Jill's sort of fundamental point here that, if you step back and you don't sort of obsess over the, the the presenteeism of you walk outside your office and you don't see civil servants or you get out of office replies saying I'm working from home or I'm working flexibly or anything like that, and you actually start thinking about what it is that you want the organisation to provide to you, what is actually the best value for money in terms of how uh, civil servants work, where they work, how they organise themselves, how they run meetings, all that kind of stuff, and start thinking about it that way. Uh, then you can do sort of you can do better with with the organization and that speaks to reform more generally uh, it isn't just about sort of the hobby horse or the latest issue or the headline grabbing or whatever if you really want to to reform the civil service or government reform whatever you want to call it you have to actually look do boring stuff and you have to do it over a sustained period of time and this just isn't interesting to ministers you know it's rare when you get someone like francis maud who gets up every day purely because he's motivated by civil service reform and so you end up seeing this high turnover of the ministers who end up being in charge of of this particular area usually the minister for the cabinet office um and that means that you know you don't get continuity in that and you might have se- you know they've got senior civil servants who are dealing with it. You've got a chief operating officer. You've got, you know, crews of people in the cabinet office whose entire role is is this government reform program. But without interest from a senior minister, sustained interest and understanding of what the, the real challenges are of doing it, not just the headlines of it, it's hard to do. And without interest from the prime minister, it means that departments are going to get dragged towards the issues that, you know, the PM is wanting to focus on, uh, which is the sort of, you know, the new policies that they can announce. It's not that kind of it's seen as tinkering behind the scenes, but it's not. It's much more fundamental to that. It's and it, this is the thing, you know. We are obviously nerds here. We we love this kind of stuff. It's seen as boring, but it's actually it's fundamental to everything else that you're doing. Uh, making sure that you've got good staff in place, that you've not got so high turnover that you're just you know wasting institutional memory all over the place, and therefore making policy mistakes because you're just not using that resource well enough. It 
all these fr- other frustrations that ministers have, they all stem from the issue of how you reform civil service, how you make improvements that many people have been talking about for ages. So yes, I would like to see them return to, to taking an interest in it, but in the right way. But the path to civil service reform, Kath, doesn't lie through civil service bashing. I don't think that's no. an effective reform programme. And if Jacob Rees-Mogg wants to really to pick up the Francis Moore Batten as a Minister for Civil Service Reform as part of his government efficiencies brief, then sort of taking cheap shots is well, yeah, not and, going to win him any allies. That's part of my frustration. I mean, the the sort of, you know, Paul got called the godfather earlier on, but the godfather mm. of the efficiency efforts within um, Whitehall goes back to this guy, Derek Rayner, who was a Marks and Spencer's uh, executive and was brought in by Thatcher in 79 to look at government efficiency. And his effort, his, you know, his, his approach effectively was to send young civil servants into departments and to ask fundamental questions of what does the evidence actually tell us? So it was like to look differently at things and think, okay, you know, this may be a sort of cliched way that we think that stuff is happening. But is that actually true? What's really going on here? And to sort of dig under the skin of this kind of stuff. And and that's what's really important. Don't just fall into sort of cliched traps about, you know, failures of civil service. Really ask what actually makes a difference. As you both have said, you know, attacking the civil service doesn't really help improve government. But Paul, do you think uh, attacks on civil servants are a vote winner? We've got the local elections coming up. Is this something we're going to be hearing more of in the coming weeks? I'm not sure they are a vote winner. Um, as I say, the, the main votes that they're trying to attract are those of newspaper editors. Um, yeah. uh, in terms of in, in, in individual ordinary members of the public, I think what the pandemic has perhaps revealed to people is, for example, in the health service, that um, you know managers, backroom staff are as important as frontline staff, and it's the same with the civil service. You know, if you've got the right people running the right systems, whether it's the treasury devising a furlough scheme really quickly or whether it's DWP making uh, universal credit work smoothly, then, you know, those aren't pen-pushing jobs that ought to be denigrated. They're, they're really important for public service in the public realm. Fantastic. And a nice, a nice note to end this week's podcast on. And so thank you very much um, to everybody. That's it for another episode of Inside Briefing. Um, my huge thanks to Jill Rutter, to Kath Haddon, to Rhys Klein, and especially to Paul Wall. And thank you all for listening at home. Um, You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and on all major platforms. And please do leave us a review as well. And don't forget to visit our website at www.instituteforgovernment.org.uk if you want explainers on everything from contempt of parliament to the ministerial code to ministerial directions and misleading parliament. We've got it all, as well as that brand new report on the government's efforts to reform the civil service. Um, Do check it out and see you next time.